in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to headphones in your ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest. And joining me today is my good friend and co-host and former roommate from the University of Tennessee, Dustin Melbardis. How are you doing, sir? Evolve for life. I'm doing great. Love thinking back to those times back in Andy Holt Tower and ready to record. You know, I think we should get somebody else who was Russell's former roommate from Andy Holt Tower from the floor above the year after. Moving on up. Here we go. Mr. Byron Figaro. How are you doing, sir? Great. Happy to be here. Evolve for life. That's right. And... Also, if you recognize Byron's name, one of the earliest episodes we did was the uh, was Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. And that was a fun episode to the Wild West. So uh, just a plug to the old uh, episode that we had done there before as well. So, Byron, we got to know you a little bit there. We want to get to know you a little bit better here now. Uh, what's the last movie you saw? The uh, last movie that I saw was um the snyder cut just oh yeah what'd you think about that i thought it was better i thought it was a lot better than the uh what was the josh whedon cut Uh uh-huh yeah yeah Yeah, so uh it's worth the time investment for you then yeah yeah i thought it was fun i want to know i want to know why it's worth it what what is what is something that that makes that worth it because i i need to be kind of coaxed or coerced into seeing this um i would say that there was more continuity throughout the movie than in the josh whedon the josh whedon cut i feel like the original version just kind of felt like it was patchworked together. Like some of the scenes didn't really mesh as well with each other. And it just felt like there was a more consistent vision, I think, in the uh, the Snyder Cut. What you described is one of my pet peeves with movies, a thing that will like yeah, make me kind of like turn off from a movie. So I'm glad to hear that. Awesome. Dustin, what about you? What's the last movie you saw? Aside from what we are talking about today, I saw I rewatched as I tend to do Catch Me If You Can with uh, Tom Hanks and Leo and uh, Christopher Walken. Just a classic from, you know, several years ago. And uh, something about this movie we're covering just made me made me get into that headspace. Catch Me If You Can. okay. I've tried. You're here too fast. I mean, I can't spoil that movie. We're going to talk a lot about another one, but I can't spoil that one for our our listeners. Okay, And uh, for me. Uh, the last movie I saw was Argo from 2012. So this is the Ben Affleck starred and directed movie, uh, about a going into Iran and rescuing some, uh, I guess not necessarily hostages, but people in a sticky situation to get them out and by under the guise of a fake movie. You know what? It's a lot of fun. Like, it's not like hilarious fun, but like, it's very interesting. And given the drama of the high stakes and all that, it, it's still done because it's a fake movie in a way that is also fun. So um, I was expecting a heavier movie than it was, and I actually had a good time with it. So uh, I do recommend it. Do we have, what is it, two years before we can cover it on RMR? Uh, one year. Next year. One year. Oh, this year's flown by. Yeah, yeah all right. Yeah. yeah, 2012. It's eligible next year. So you might hear more from it in, uh, later. If I'm not mistaken, I think it even got Best Picture. But yes. I think so, it so, was so, either Best Picture or like Best Director. Yeah, so... 
Uh, and it is eligible for next year, and it could come up because it won three Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and Best Editing, and it was nominated for a total of seven. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but today's uh, movie that we're doing is also very touted and has accolades as well. But before we get there, bonus question. You both have been roommates to Russell for one year. Tell the listeners one memorable, funny, or annoying strange story from Russell in the dorm days. Probably what I remember the most was the, um, while he did introduce me to Fire Emblem, and I'll be forever grateful to that, uh, what I remember the most was definitely the uh, intense Smash Brother matches um, playing against his uh, Luigi and the death poke that would send me flying off screen over and over and over again. It was, uh, it was a good time. Sometimes Byron <laughs> wakes up in the middle of the night and hears the sound effect of that, like the Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. yeah <laughs> yeah we would crank up and have these marathon matches where each of us had 20 stock lives and just go at it for a long time so it was a blast yeah it was fun yeah it's a great way to spend an evening yeah dustin what about you i kind of need some help remembering why but for some i was trying to convince you of something or whatever it was but i um i was standing outside of your room and i recreated the say anything scene where where cusack holds the the boombox over his head. <laughs> I have a picture of this. Yeah, and I. But can you remember why I was doing? I was just standing outside your room holding my laptop, which did not have great speakers. No, it didn't. I guess just. <laughs> yeah, I don't <laughs> no, know. no, it, was, it had bad I, I remember that it happened, but I don't remember why. That's also the, that that's lost on me as well. So that's very funny. <laughs> and I've got that picture floating around on a hard drive too. I, I I actually scrolled through it like last week and. It wasn't until you decided to ask this question. I was like, oh, yeah, why was I doing that? No, no idea. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so that's funny. But today we're going to do uh, Dustin. What is our movie for today? Today we are covering The Departed. The Departed stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Jack Nicholson, Mark Wahlberg, Martin Sheen, Ray Winstone, Vera Farminga, and Alec Baldwin. It's released in 2006. It grosses $132.3 million. It places in the box office at 15th on the year. It, um, it comes in just behind Mission Impossible 3 and ahead of Borat. And the number one movie that year in 2006 was Pirates of the Caribbean, The Dead Man's Chest. IMDb gives The Departed an 8.5, and Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give it a 90%, and the audience likes it even more and gives it a 94%. It's definitely an award winner. It wins Best Director for Martin Scorsese, Best Film Editing, Best Picture, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It also took away a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Mark Wahlberg, and uh, it is also... Uh, it's a Golden Globe winner for Best Director in a Motion Picture, and it gets five other Golden Globe nominees as well. Byron, have you seen The Departed before? If so, what was your background with it? What's it like coming back to it now? And what's your take on it? Uh, yes, i seen this. I watch it probably once every uh, every couple years. Um, first time I saw it was when it first came out uh, in theaters. Um, if I recall correctly, it was like the Carmike Wind song um, in Knoxville, and um, yeah, I, I, it's one of my favorite movies. Definitely top ten. Um, just one of those movies that I really enjoy watching over and over again. So I was happy to cover it. Yeah, and so it's holding up for you then. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, Dustin, what about you? What, what's your history with The Departed? I really like to embrace this role that I've fallen into on Retro Movie Roundtable as the guy who didn't see the big hit. Uh, award-winning movies. I had never seen this before. So I was excited that it, uh, when we selected it because now, 15 years later, I get to learn what all the hype was about. Uh, so no, I, I this was my first uh, chance looking at it. Uh, I will say 
I gave it the full two and a half hours, no note taking, no, no analysis, just um, watch it fully and enjoy. And that I did. All right. And uh, for me, I'm like Byron. I had seen this one. Well, I didn't see this one in the theaters. I saw it shortly after it came out to the rental stores, which was a thing at the time. And I miss. And I I did not actually enjoy it the first time. And I let it sit there for quite a while. And Mary did not see it with me. And we watched it together years later. And I warmed up to it. She didn't like it. Uh, it's like It's like a first time you watch it, you don't like it kind of thing, maybe. And uh, this was probably my third time coming back to it. And so I watched it. I watched it twice preparing for this. So uh, I have warmed up to it over the years. And uh, there's some jarring moments in the movie that uh, catch you off guard. It is quite violent and uh, it's not necessarily a feel good movie. And so when that happens, sometimes I don't necessarily put my arms around the movie right away. So uh However, there's so many good things going on about this movie, as we're about to get into, that I have grown to appreciate it beyond just feeling good. I think I've already gotten my appreciation for it after after watching it in preparation for, for today. Uh, and and I, I will come back to it. Um, I, I don't have any more hours left on my Amazon rental, but I will come back to it. I think this is something that should be watched. Uh, and I was as as I was watching it, I was just thinking this all the hype that seemed to follow it. Because I'm not necessarily like a Scorsese, a Scorsese guy, but all the hype that kind of followed it, I was like, okay, earned, deserved. Yeah, 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 for sure. And Scorsese makes other kinds of movies other than just gangster movies. But yeah, this is definitely what you think of when you think of Scorsese. So uh, now, before we go any further, I got to warn everybody, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So watch The Departed if you have not. And if you have, sit tight. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded movie-loving individuals like you what happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up you get the classic film jerks podcast find the classic film jerks podcast on all the major platforms all right we're back and if this is your final warning if you have not seen the departed there will be spoilers that lie ahead dustin for those who haven't seen the departed since 2006 do you want to refresh people's memory Cue Dropkick Murphys, because you apparently have to use that damn song anytime you talk about Boston. Frank Costello runs an outfit he's been successful for decades. We see him involved in the upbringing of Colin Sullivan, who eventually rises through the police force as a detective. During these initial shots, we're introduced to Billy Costigan, who is pursuing his own purpose after being raised split between wealth on one side on his family and a rough crime connections from the other. Both are infiltrators, men on the inside of the opposition and our story follows as they attempt to sow trust, earn their spot, succeed in their deception, and ultimately survive as these two charged magnet organizations continue to draw each other closer. Enter police psychiatrist Madeline, whose interest opens a window to what is important outside of their respective groups, and we share the ride as these two reach the point of no return, with Sullivan's captain and Costigan's support queen and getting tossed off a roof, 
Costello getting plugged by Sullivan for fear that the FBI is on to him, and the remaining leads learn that there are always way more players on the board than were ever revealed, leading to both of their demises. Uh, Q dropkick Murphy's again for some reason. I mean, what, did they just release that song or something? <laughs> it's just wicked good. It's a wicked good song. I suddenly have the urge for Dunkin' Donuts now. Uh, so now, Byron, this is, uh, this is one of the movies that you helped us select here. Uh, this is kind of an interesting movie about the convergence of two parallel lives. And it's a movie that deals with uh, deception and information and, I guess you could say, misinformation. And who has the knowledge when? And it, it builds a lot of suspense through the movie. Tell, tell us what you thought about this kind of weaving of these two parallel tracks. Um, I really liked the way that a uh, juxtaposition that Scorsese used um, to tell the story between these two opposing forces. Um, in fact, one of my favorite scenes was, I actually really liked how he kind of let it set itself up before even showing the title card for the movie. Because one thing that I read was that people really, um, one noticeable thing was that you didn't even know what the name of the movie was until over like five minutes or 10 minutes into the film. It's like 18, 18 minutes. minutes. Yeah, it's like 18 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it, felt, it felt long, yeah. Um, at which point, he goes into a panning shot um, first of um, Colin on the balcony of his apartment overlooking, um, I forget the name of it. Was it Beacon Hill? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, state then, ha- the state house there at Massachusetts. Right. And then transition directly into a panning shot of Billy working out in his cell. And I just feel like just going back and forth, I, I really feel like that um, it really helped you just compare apples to apples to apples or apples to oranges i guess i don't know i feel like there's so much lying in the movie it's hard to tell i mean they're they're similar and then they're opposing at the same time so um i just really enjoyed that part of the movie really it uh it's interesting they both kind of have a similar starting point you know they both are trying to rise above their backgrounds you know uh matt damon's character colin is uh, his father uh, did not amount to much he was just a uh, you know, a baggage man at an airport and uh, Billy's, uh, you know, sorry, actually. I think it's swapped, right? Yeah, I was going to say, Colin, Colin's dad is just a janitor and Billy's father is a airport uh, baggage man who has connections to uh, the life of crime and neither of them, you know, are happy with that and they want more. And how they go about pursuing that is wildly different. And so you end up having one character who lives uh you know puts his nose to the grindstone and goes to work for the good guys but he ends up doing bad thing and the other guy goes to work for the good guys but he's in cahoots and he's risen to the top because he's been propped up by bad people and so he wants to do good things he wants he wants the prestige he wants to be elevated up but his road to get there is through the connections of crime and uh it's kind of interesting how they're kind of just two sides of the same coin is that fair dustin it's fair. I, I I don't know about Colin's upbringing, like his cho- his choice to do good. Did he ever have a choice? We meet Colin while he's sitting there having a sandwich at the countertop. Uh, when when um, <clears throat> Costello walks in, is am I am I getting that wrong? Did did he ever really have a choice as to um what he would do with his adult life, or did he was he kind of plucked young? 
Well, we know he was uh, he was in the Catholic Church and that he, that was a part of his life and his family, you know, was struggling to get by. And yeah, Costello lures him in. He knows who he is. He knows how to get to him and, you know, sends groceries home with him and clearly has money and he can kind of just do whatever he wants to do. And it, it shows to Colin, like even as a young age, he's watching him kind of he just he's not a nice guy. He knows that, but he can do whatever he wants to do. And that power and prestige that comes with that. I think is what Colin latches on to. Like, Maybe it's those words that, that a man makes his own way and the church will tell you how to do it this way, And but you don't have to. You can kind of do whatever you want. Look at me. I do what I want. And uh, maybe there's some of that that uh, make yourself into what you want to make yourself into, not following these other rules. Uh, then, then again, um, he's still within a, a, a world confined with rules. Um, but going back to what you said, is it fair to say two sides of the same coin? Um, almost as quickly as a coin flips in the air, you get these shots back and forth between um, between Billy's uh, time that he's talking with uh, the the with Martin Sheen and Wahlberg about going undercover, and you you you, you very quickly move between uh, these these two lives uh, juxtaposed together, as Byron said, uh, and and it's awesome to see. I guess probably the first, not just the first eighteen minutes before the credit or the the title card but also like the next the next 10 20 after that it's very quick back and forth between the lives of these two men yeah and i think it's interesting that they're both moles or rats for the opposite sides you have colin is a gangster uh, who is put through the academy and he's you know he's spying on the police and then on the flip side billy was plucked before going into the police state police force and he's a rat for the gangster mob and so they're both trying to attain information and give it back to their sides and it's a it's kind of a race for who can get the information and it's it only intensifies and becomes more suspenseful as both sides are aware that they have a rat and they don't know who it is and they're trying to figure it out and it kind of sets off the clock of they're both trying to figure out what's going on and make everything final before they themselves are found and obviously would be in great trouble. Billy obviously would be killed. His his th- you know, and as well, Colin would be thrown in jail for a very long time as well. So or killed by Costello for failing him. So uh, the stakes are high here. Byron, uh, as these things weave, as I mentioned, like you know, it's kind of fun to see them come together. Like explain how that weaving and like almost hitting each other is as you watch this movie. Well, I like the use of, or I guess the introduction of Madeline as kind of really the only common point between the two lives. She's kind of caught in, she's actually the only one really that's caught in between um, without even really knowing it. Um, Like, you know, they're sharing the same spaces. They're crossing each other. They're searching for each other. They they get they get desperately close to finding each other at multiple So I was kind of just alluding to um, how does it feel as a viewer to watch them looking for each other and just not quite find each other? Um, I think it uh, it really helped convey the suspense in the film. Just you know, it was I think it it uh, required a lot of tact on the the writing of the film just kind of almost like a dance between the two just getting just close enough to raise the stakes a little bit and then just miss and you're, you're kind of caught just waiting you know for the next time where they almost uh, they almost catch each other yeah yeah and i think you were starting to say like madeline and costello to some point are yeah you know similar points that's that, true that they have different experiences of 
and they have the shared world, but then again, they're on parallel tracks. And it's interesting how they are looking for each other. Whether they find each other through the movie, and which, which we, we do get close, like we, we get close to our two leads really meeting. It, it made me think about um, in, the, in the past with, with uh, the mob existing, whether that's in Boston or we learn there's another outfit in Providence, um, getting the FBI involved with this uh, state trooper task force, uh, like the, this kind of relationship between these two organizations has existed a long time. Um, and both of these organizations have missions and both of these leads have missions. So I was thinking about it uh, after watching. I was thinking, what, what are the missions of uh, Billy and Kali? So Billy's mission is to get enough information for Queenan and Dignam and the, and the shared task force to finally bring down this major organized crime outfit. We know that like what that mission should end with. And Billy's on the inside for the crime organization. But then that made me think, and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you guys can help me with the answer. Like, what is, is there an end goal to Colin, Collie's mission? Uh, aside from just being a reliable, pick your rodent, mole, rat, I don't know, rabbit, squirrel, whatever rodent you want to pick. Uh, in, being inside of the police organization just sort of seems like a be reliable, be on standby for your crime boss. Uh, is there another mission or another like point of completion there? I don't think that there really was an end game from his point of view. And I kind of wonder if that's what the character was starting to realize towards the end of the film is that this is what he was bred for, you know, from a young age is to just constant be a constant thorn in the department side feeding information to Costello up until the point, I guess, where Costello just passes on for for whatever means. I don't really see an end for him. I think he has his, I think you're right. Costello doesn't have any higher ambitions other than to continue to know what's going on, which is a valuable piece in its own right to him, uh, using him as a spy. But I think Colin has a personal goal. You see that he moves into an apartment and that apartment overlooks the Golden Dome at Beacon Hill. This is the second time we've brought this up. And that's a sign of the high life, the prestige, the academia that he wants. He couldn't go to college. And he wanted to. You could see that in a conversation he had with one of his friends in the academy earlier. He feels like he can't get there from his station in life. And this is a means to an end for him. And he's obviously going about it unethically, but he wants out. And it kind of even becomes clear when he's dealing with Costello on the phone when Madeline's moved in. He kind of threatens her. And you see him kind of trying to gain a little bit of leverage and independence of saying, like, let me do this my own way. And, you know, my career still matters. And, you know, it's you start to see him take on his own identity. And he's ultimately the one that shoots Costello himself. And he starts to he shoots Costello's other rat who saved his life by shooting Billy in the end, which we'll get to that crazy ending here soon. But he just wants the he doesn't necessarily love the crime. It's just a way that he gets to be part of this prestigious life and his attraction to madeline in part is is her she's she's wearing a harvard shirt later she's a college educated woman and she has status as well and so i think he just wants out of the low class life and he wants to be next to that gold dome which is the high life we're shown that that is uh something that he likes about his apartment it's something like for his the things that he could attain i'm i'm just wondering after the Afterwards, I'm thinking to myself, 
how realistic is it to say that when you are plucked in your early teen years and you make your way through the academy, through detective, uh, being handed command of such of these things, how realistic is it, I guess, for most people involved in organized crime, at least theatrical organized crime, how realistic is it that you will do a good job for a while and then get out? Maybe it's more realistic if you end up being surrounded by law enforcement and you can you can you can then have that trust uh, of getting out. But I don't if I were to look at it now, I'm like, I don't see any situation where saying, OK, yeah, I did my I did my job for a long time. I want out. It's we know how that happens for or we know how that should have happened for Billy. But I don't know how that happens for Colin. You're stuck. But he's stuck. Like it's hard he's to, yeah. stuck. Yeah, he's stuck. But. I, I also think that that with what's presented to us as the audience, it doesn't take away from anything. I I didn't I wasn't sitting there watching the movie saying like, dude, that's not realistic. That's not going to happen. I was still I was kind of along for the thrill ride, which it was, and uh, was wasn't really fun to to see uh, how we culminate in that kind of um, a dark alley chase. How when these all of these important actors in what's going on are so close in propinquity to one another. Uh, it's nerve wracking. I, I kind of felt myself like kind of grabbing the edge of my seat. Literally like this is, we are so close to somebody looking up and seeing one of the other ones. Um, I think the, the way that we are headed to the culmination of this film was uh, really fun to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally one of them walks out of Dignam, uh, you know, Colin walks out of Dignam and, and Queenan's office and then, Billy walks in past him. At this point, they're not looking for each other. They don't know each other. They're just strangers in an office setting. And when you go back and watch that, that weaving is beginning even then, much less later by the time, you know, Colin is being stalked by Billy, who's trying to watch what he's doing with Costello. And he's chasing him down, trying to get an identity on who he is. I mean, it gets very direct and very exciting later on. But uh, it's the weaving starts early and it doesn't let up. And right down to the very end where their deaths are moments apart. And then you do weave in Madeline. And I didn't expect, nor nor did I, I need it, but that it was involved. I liked it. Madeline being involved in Billy's life uh, more, more so than uh, Colin's. And uh, her moving into Colin's apartment and their relationship uh, becomes more integral. This is no longer just two strings twisting. This is now a braid. And one of these third strings is is creating non-work problems or non-work obstacles to how both of these guys get to where they need to go. Um, Unless I'm wrong, in which I I would say she's actually much more of a help to to Billy to uh, Leo's character. She's um, a big positive in his life. I don't know that it's intentionally. Brian, what do you think about Madeline's character? I, um, I, I really enjoy the character. Um, I think this was the first film that I had ever seen um, Vera Farmiga in, and I thought she did a great job. Um, to speak to her ability to help Billy more than Colin, I feel like that was really tied to the fact that Billy was allowed to be more honest and upfront with her in their relationship than Colin is obviously so you know obviously to protect his um his position in the department um i feel like she was extremely intelligent you know she was able to you know kind of call bullcrap on some of colin's um comments specifically when um i think when frank called in with the uh the voice modulator or modifier um to somebody who had a laryn just laryn what's it called it larynx Lar- larynx Laryngebotomy. Okay. Laryngebotomy. Okay. Yeah. 
something. <laughs> um, I feel like she was also a strong character, you know, because she told Billy off too when he was just trying to scam her for uh, for pills, you know. But she was also, you know, kind and trying to help him and stuff like that. Um, I think I was a little more interested in her interaction with Billy than with Colin because I guess that seemed a little more one-sided and uh, fictional. Yeah, I think Colin likes the idea of her more than herself and billy uh makes a connection through to her because she gives him a place to be vulnerable where he clearly has none it's not like mm-hmm. queen and Dig- dignum's not gonna let him get vulnerable you know i mean no, uh, and he no. can't he can't tell anybody in his family this he can't open it up to anybody in the organization so he's he's mentally breaking down which is an interesting aspect of this movie uh you know colin is nervous but he's not in constant fear of his life every minute that he's in there and so billy's literally uh, a rickety mess but i think it's also interesting that madeline also not a nice person she's lying she's she's not necessarily aware of anything that colin's doing that's wrong she's just infatuated with a second man and you know oh, yeah. there was a there was a therapist who uh, looked at the script ahead of time for vera for minkin because she did she did do as a good actor would do kind of shadowing somebody and they said this character does everything wrong, you know, like whether it be from how the pills are done for continuing to, to communicate with this person to agree and to get coffee. So she's breaking her rules left and right. And uh, she's she even said, like, you know, what would you do if Colin walked in right now on this? And uh, she said, uh, or your boyfriend, he doesn't know who it is, which just makes it more interesting. She says, I'd lie. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and yeah, so, um, and uh, she even had a line later. It's like, I thought I was the liar. Yeah. <laughs> and um so everybody's lying to everybody and costello who you think can even be genuine because he's got nothing to hide but he does he hates rats he despises them in his own organization and yet he uses colin as a rat and furthermore he is one himself to the fbi that's what's keeping him protected to the point of why is he doing some of the things that he's doing just for the sheer fact that he's like he likes to deal drugs <laughs> he likes to kill people he He's on a bit of a power trip, and he's protected himself by ratting out guy, the rest of his organization. This guy loves microprocessors. This, <laughs> this guy's super about selling these microprocessors to the Chinese. Yes, he is. I, 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 sorry, I had to say that because I don't know if I've ever been so... If, if I've ever been made to laugh so much at how many people say the word microprocessor in this movie, it's said a hundred and nobody knows what they are either. Uh, yeah, the microchip, they're using the computers, uh, whatever it is. Uh, uh, the whole like, kind of middle like act where uh, we are leading to the, the buying and selling of the microprocessors. Um, I'm going to say the movie isn't a comedy, but it is funny. And so there are things like that that are unintentionally funny, I think, which are the, the just how many times they say microprocessor. And, what, and for what sum of money? One million dollars? I feel like we have a little bit of the Dr. Evil aspect where he'll keep holding the <laughs> hostage for one million dollars. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. Uh, like, the, the, the parts outside of what the organized crime, or the, the parts outside of, like, what the crime organization is doing, selling drugs and microprocessors, that's not what this movie's about. This movie's about the interaction of these two organizations. Uh, it, it's there's not some big sting they're trying to like catch him on the big one it's alluded to and even with that particular scene with the Chinese that's the, the movie isn't about like that culmination 
because in fact it doesn't culminate in anything the the side of law enforcement was too rushed and they they were not able to uh, prepare for it and then they get away in a boat uh so like there's that the the crunchiness the mechanics of how these of how the crime organization works isn't featured and that isn't necessary i'm 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 glad it wasn't it's it's about these relationships between all of these people and whether it's a lead or a supporting actor they're all they're all great yeah for sure so speaking of 1 million dollars you like some stats and some numbers this guy does yeah all right yeah. byron uh, over under how many f words do you believe are used in this movie 50 okay dustin over under or sorry, uh, without going over, Price is Right rules here. How many Seven, F-words? 72. You're going to get this one because it's 238 <laughs> F-bombs. Oh, wow. Mm. So uh, you're both under, way under. Uh, <laughs> we'll, do this one, we'll do this one again. How many people die in this one? Uh, body count in this one. Byron, do you want to go first on this one? Uh, I think well, I might I have accidentally first. seen this one. Okay. Go you can go ahead. That's the way the game works. Uh, okay. I'm going to say, how many people die? Yeah. Uh, 24. Okay. Oh, and Byron. I say 22. Byron did his homework ahead of time. It is 22. <laughs> exactly. So 22 oh, is too okay. high for Blackjack, but not for this game. <laughs> so uh, it, it is interesting. And I think one of the other things that we should mention is that Costello's character is actually kind of based on a real life South Boston gangster named James Whitey Bulger or Whitey Bulger. And he's kind of a legend in south boston nothing happened in that neighborhood without really him knowing about it now costello's not literally telling the whitey bulger story but uh it is definitely influenced by that gangster world of his irish gang and uh it's it's an interesting story in its own right so if you like gangsters uh which you might if you're watching this movie you should probably check out uh whitey bulger he's a pretty audastic kind of dude He's a, uh, he's a, uh, he's the rules don't apply to him kind of guy as well. So, uh, I don't know if you guys, uh, picked up on any of that at all. What I'll say about Whitey Bulger is after he was killed in prison, I know, I know that American media jumped on it, whether in the form of docu-series or documentary or just more very closely related things to, uh, Bulger's life in that area in the Northeast. But, uh, that's not, that's never been my favorite thing. I much prefer something like this, where inspiration can be drawn, as opposed to uh, the, the the life story or closest to the true story of an actual uh, gangster. Uh, this is much more creative and much more fun for me than than, than true crime stuff. Uh, people people will say, "Oh, you in a true crime?" And my answer has always been a flat, "No, not really." You are. Yeah, yeah. Give it to me, interesting, not not real. That's fine. Yeah, and. Uh... Yeah, and he Bulger was an FBI informant himself, and so that there are a lot, there are a number of influences drawn from him. But I mean, Jack Nicholson brought a lot to the role himself. Um, Byron, transitioning, talking about the acting. What points would you like to call out? Like, what are the, the things that the actors did that stood out to you? The scene where, uh, first off, I heard that he made up a lot of the lines. He ad libbed a lot of it uh, of the scenes in the movie. It was just kind of Jack just doing him. You know, um, in the place of his character, and some of the more memorable scenes were things that he had proposed. For example, um, the porn theater scene where it was Jack. Apparently, it was Jack Nicholson's idea to wear the, uh, the dildo um, in front of Matt Damon. And <laughs> that's still—it's a really funny scene when that happens. I, 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 I applaud that choice. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. 
It, it it it's it's right on it's right before a very tense and exciting moment too. So it 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 does it is one of those tones of just like especially on the third watch, you're just kind of like, huh, that's not in the tone of the movie here. But it was in the tone of Jack Nicholson that day, and like you know that he thought about doing it and like kind of just chuckled to himself when thinking about doing it again. I could just kind of see him smiling and laughing, trying to keep it under wraps, and then doing it. It I actually. Hadn't thought about that since watching the movie a couple days ago until you just said it. And it, it's cracking me up right now. Yeah. But my favorite scene was the part where he was talking. Apparently when he was uh, talking to Leto uh, in the bar and they're discussing who the rat might be. And then you hear the gun fall and then he bends over and he picks up. Uh, Jack picks up his gun and kind of looks at it and then he just points it directly at, uh, Billy. at Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. yeah. Apparently that whole scene was also just uh, improvised. And when I first saw that, when I remember it, because my heart jumped in my chest, I thought that was Billy's gun. Like he was getting ready to pull on oh, okay. uh, on Frank, and Frank just picks it up like, oh, what's this? <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought they, that was interesting. When they found out they had Jack Nicholson on the cast, they made the part bigger for him. And it is a he has a very big presence in the movie to your point as an actor he just wanted to make him a wild card like you don't know what this guy's gonna do so that the fact that when he's an fbi informant it somehow seems believable because this man does anything everything and does you know and then doesn't necessarily have a code that he sticks to other than he's out for himself yeah look for me when i'm eating breakfast or whenever i grew up in the south and so i i I learned like table etiquette no elbows on the table at no hands either, whether or not they're connected to someone or you're taking the ring off or pulling a bloody hand out of a plastic bag, you don't know what he's going to do. That was, a, the, I think, the first moment in the movie where I was like, whoa, this is unpredictable. Uh, when he's, he's, I don't know what he's having for breakfast. It looked like some type of shellfish, which is decadent. Shellfish for breakfast. And then you pull out a hand. And there's a little comedy after that, too. Like, uh, Mr. French walks over and says, uh, like, they're commenting about the grisly act that they had done. Like, oh, then they're, they're laughing about it. I, I thought it was a nice touch that you asked the guy which hand he masturbated with. And this is just a you know, polite breakfast conversation with Billy uh, sitting at the other side of the table. She felt funny after he shoots <laughs> somebody in the back of the head. So. I, I wondered if the whole tone of the movie would have more of that in it, because that's very early. <laughs> she felt funny <laughs> very early. Yeah, yeah. So, but... Nicholson, would you? What would you think? Because initially, Scorsese pursued Al Pacino for this role. Uh, he does later go on to work with him in The Irishman. Uh, what do you think about Pacino in this role, Byron? Honestly, I can't imagine him doing an Irish accent. <laughs> That's a good point. At least not well, like Jack Nicholson, so I couldn't. I don't think Jack really gives you Boston as like. I, I feel like Jack just showed up and was Jack to some degree. I feel like uh, you know Damon and Wahlberg get the golden star for their boston accents and yeah. baldwin's not bad but i feel like i feel like nicholson's doing his own thing yeah maybe when it when it tends when the needle moves towards boston with nicholson i i did cringe a bit because clearly when you have somebody at the caliber of nicholson you expect everything to be on point and great uh so I, I i would have preferred if it was closer to nicholson than it was closer to boston i think i think he he had one bad like hard R or or swallowed R that like I just had to really quickly move past in my mind. Like no, it's you're still watching Jack do. You're still watch, watching an expert do his work. Don't don't linger on that. Yeah, 
Now, another fun alternative casting, if you've seen Goodfellas, Ray Liotta is a big, he's the main character, uh, big role in this movie that Scorsese works on. He actually came back to Liotta, hoping to put him in the role of uh, Dignam, who would later go on to be Mark Wahlberg, who had a lot of other structuring conflicts with his schedule, and they talked him into doing it, and he did it. And um, he had a bad relationship with Scorsese because he was only supposed to be there for like four weeks, but it took months to do, and it it caused him some difficulty and stuff like that. But uh, Ray Liotta, what do you think about Ray Liotta and the role of Dignam? I could have seen that. Uh, I would have I would have liked to have seen that. Although I did like uh, Mark Wahlberg's role, I thought he did a good job with that. But I could see Ray Liotta doing the same thing. To be honest. Yeah, yeah. I could even see Liotta. The the age might not be quite right, but. I could also see him going towards the softer side of taking Martin Sheen's role, but he wasn't available. So like, it just was a scheduling conflict. It wasn't a role issue. So mm-hmm. Dennis Leary also was looked at and Ethan Hawke were considered for Dignam as well. So uh, Mark Wahlberg to me nailed that one though. Yeah. See, I was going to say if, if I had to place Leota in this movie, I would probably do it on the, on the mob side, not on the law enforcement. Oh, like maybe Ray Winstone's character. Perhaps, or, or 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 one of the other ones, but I, I, I will say, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Winstone is Mr. French. I actually really like, but maybe as Delahunt. Uh, but but I I liked Wahlberg as Dignam. I also liked the amount of screen time, which was if you had to smush it all together, Wahlberg's screen time was less than ten minutes, probably. But every one of those twenty-second to minute-long uh, strings of uh, of curses and insults and firing back at somebody else was gold. And I think that's about as much of Mark Wahlberg as I need ever in in anything. I, I like him in that amount and then move on to something else. So you don't want a full album of Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch then? No, no. Give me more Funky Bunch. And I've been saying this for a while, guys. Give me more Funky Bunch. In fact, just give it to me. Dusty Dust and the Funky Bunch. Let me let me take over. We're, Mark, <laughs> you're, you're, you're way too focused on fitness. You wake up at four in the morning and you go pray and then you go work out and you pray again. Just, you keep doing that. Let me do the Funky Bunch stuff. Anyway, you know, let me get off my pedestal. <laughs> um... Any other acting comments that you wanted to bring up, Byron? I liked Martin Sheen's role. I didn't appreciate him the first time I saw it. I think I was just kind of, you know, I think a lot of people overshadowed his character. But um, just the roles with him and uh, Leo towards the middle and end of the film where, you know, he welcomed into his home and stuff like that. I think he really did a good job of being kind of a father figure to, uh, to Billy. He's like the only nice guy in this movie. Pretty much. Yeah. Actually, who's the biggest jerk in this movie? It's a, it's actually a pretty tough question. Because Madeline, as we just said, not a nice person. I mean, Colin, not a nice guy. Costello, super, like, he's he's evil. Like, he's beyond a jerk. Like, he's evil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Alec Baldwin, you know, his character, not nice. Dignam. I mean, jerk, like, yeah. so, so in a movie full of jerks, who gets the big jerk award? I think Dignam was the most entertaining jerk. He was a funny jerk. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I think, I think... I would also go with Dignum, but what we do learn early, before title card, I believe, is uh, Dignum says to Billy, if you want to help the Commonwealth, this is how you do it. We need you, pal. It, it, th- there is, I've, I've mentioned this before, a difference between tough love and just being tough. And this is mostly just being tough. But you get a little bit of that out of Wahlberg then, and obviously in the last minute of the movie. 
of what what are his values, what does he live, and clearly he cares about the identities and the secrecy of of, of his team, you know, a staff sergeant uh, of the people that he that trust him and and he needs to place trust in. So uh, outward jerk, yeah, but there's also the the caring about what his duty is that uh, drew me to his character and to and to uh, Queenan's character as well. The the secrecy is important. The the jerk mantra. What is what does Queenan say? Like staff sergeant has his own personality. We all got to deal with it. Well, wh- why is this? Why is this captain or why is this particular guy saying we got to deal with it? Well, clearly because he's the best, or it's because he's great at what he does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was a, a real a real pleasure to um, kind of see how that wraps up towards the end or at, at the very end of. The- Too bad Dignam mm-hmm. doesn't show up on time. Yeah, <laughs> being on I, time I not his say- strong suit. <laughs> Being on time matters again in the uh, or, you know in the movie with uh, with Billy's character not not showing up on time and uh, yeah, the little details. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it was Della Hunt I believe who says I gave you the wrong, I gave you the wrong address and you were still there. Tell me why I didn't tell the other guys. Um, there was as I said earlier I was kind of gripping my seat. There were moments of this movie that I was just like, oh yes this is like I'm I'm getting even more involved. Uh, sometimes it was something like Mr. French uh, putting his snub nose underneath his chin right after he gets uh, right, he gets shot and crashes the car. Um, sometimes it is seeing the elevator door open and hearing that gunshot, which I was I oh. do my hardest to try not to expect what's coming. It's it's a skill that you have to hone. Try not to figure things out. Try not to expect the unexpected. Let the movie give it, and uh, it does so many times. Yeah, yeah, and. You know, it's uh, don't by the way, you gotta watch out for those X's in there. Dick, Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. likes to put X's in the scenes yeah. when people are about to bite the dust. So, uh, it, it is, it is, it is a little bit of a thing that he had picked up from some old gangster movies himself. And, uh, he, it's a tip of the hat to that as well here. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, let's talk about Martin Scorsese. He's an amazing director. And, uh, we've got William Monaghan's impressive script. Martin Scorsese picks it up and it made him want to take the job right away. And it's interesting. This movie is actually kind of a remake. There's a there's a Chinese movie called Infernal Affair. And it's it's got a lot of similarities to this. Now, Scorsese didn't know about this apparently until after signing up to do the movie. He fell in love with Monaghan's screenplay. And it was about the Boston way of life. And he had uh, spread f- false information through it. There's... Um, there's that Whitey Bulger parallel, and it all was based on these things that were very, very, very anchored to Boston. It seems so out there that it couldn't be real, Scorsese said, but it was real. And that's what made him connect with it, because he himself had grown up in a world where he had seen some of this. And he's obviously known for these gangster movies. Um, Byron, what do you think about Scorsese as a director within right here within The Departed? Um, I actually liked this style of movie more than his gangster films or his more traditional ones. I mean, I, I, I liked Goodfellas, you know, and, and his other movies like that, but I guess I liked seeing his view from the police side equally as with, from the criminal side in Mm. this film, Mm -hmm. um, while still also interjecting the criminal, uh, the criminal aspect in putting a rat in the police, uh, uh, the police department. Um, but um, I think, you know, I, I'd read somewhere that this was one of the more um, 
unpleasant films that he admitted to uh, to making, especially in post production, which is kind of uh, disappointing to hear. You know, I, I I would have liked to have heard that he enjoyed this as much as I did, but it didn't seem to be the the case. But I I really liked it. It's got a heavy finish. I, I, I said we should talk about that, but I mean, what about that like finish? I mean, like honestly, when I said I didn't like this the first time, seeing Billy get shot at the end didn't sit well with me, and I let I left going there like, man, you do all that cool stuff and then you wrap it up like that. I know the message is clearly crime destroys everybody's life it comes into contact with, whether you're a good person like Queenan, um, whether you're a person like Madeline, and it destroys Billy, and it destroys Colin. And I get that that's the message, but is that the message I want? So I don't know. I found myself saying that, like, Dustin, you just saw it for a first time. Your first run was warmer than mine. How did that ending sit for you? I think maybe it's unfair because since that time I'd seen other movies where things wrap up in that way mm-hmm. or wrap up in a way that didn't sit well with me. The first one was a was a bad viewing when I was living in Knoxville. I don't think we were living together at the time, but I went and saw 310 to Yuma and I didn't like how that movie wrapped up and it kind of ruined my night. I've mentioned briefly before peak and phenomenon the idea that the peak of something and then the end of something mm-hmm. both hold kind of equal sway in your mind and the end of 310 to yuma made me not like that movie come back to it since then and have enjoyed it for what it is the hate the hateful eight has you know some some an, an ending that sometimes is uh, when you look at it you, you, you some people might not be satisfied and so i have been kind of battle hardened against uh movies that end this way and uh what i will say i i feel lucky when people tell you a movie's good and you're in the seat of never having seen it before and you get to just fully drink it all in, uh, I think I was satisfied with how it wraps up. I did find myself, even even with Billy's role as an undercover cop, just Billy's character, I wanted his arc to finish stronger or to, to you know, you want, you want to root for someone. And I found myself rooting for Billy. Um, and so seeing his end uh, at the hands of a character who I can't even remember the name of. Uh, but at, at the end of that, uh, it, it does. The message that you said, Russell, is is best, is that like, yes, crime ruins or crime destroys. Uh, but I think it, maybe that's something that is a is a positive to come out of this. movie. It, it's, it's not something that I felt like left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, the, the, I think a movie that was as heavy as this one was and how uh, stressful some of the intertwining things were. Uh, ending like that kind of was like a like a gasp, almost like a sigh of, not of relief, but like a sigh of like, ooh, so that's how it has to happen. Um, and I do have something else to say about the, you know, maybe last five minutes, ten minutes of the movie, uh, but I'm actually going to wait until a little later to discuss that. Ooh, good tease. So I, I think, Byron, I think you nailed something. Like, I actually am not in love with Scorsese's gangster work. I don't li- actually. I don't love watching Goodfellas. It's a well-made movie, but I don't like watching the destruction of a person throughout the movie. No matter how fascinating their life might be, like Scarface is like you know this is somebody who lives an extraordinary life, and it's very fascinating and captivating for a lot of people to watch somebody like Costello, who you would never act that way. But what if you did? And obviously, it leads to their destruction, and that's a good message to convey. But I think that it's just one of those things of I kind of like good to triumph. And it's one of those things where 
it's such an injustice that um you know for 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 that that it didn't sit well with me the first time now i like i said i came back to it and then i said whoa i overlooked a lot of stuff all the intricate plot work, all the number of times that they almost hit each other, the fact that it's a rat hiring a rat to go in and the other rat's trying to catch him and everybody's spying on everybody. I love it. And um, I, I was too hard on it the first time. So uh, it, it is interesting. It's also extremely violent. We haven't talked about that. Scorsese will hit you over the head with violence. And you've seen this in Mean Streets. You've seen this in Goodfellas. Byron, it's a pretty in-your-face violent movie. Very much so. I feel like up until the ending, though, it was kind of tame compared to some of his other movies. Re- oh, other movies. Yeah, I was going to say, there's no Joe yeah, Pesci. Go- okay, yes. Yeah. <laughs> compared to his other movies, it was kind of tame. And then, you know, from the moment where the primary characters start dying, it just catches up. <laughs> They saved a lot of the blood for the for the final fifteen minutes of it. Severed hands at breakfast. I mean, you oh, know, yeah. you know, I mean, point blank. Sh- there's clips of murder scenes that are very gruesome and in your face. And honestly, one of the ones that stuck for me from the first time was the uh, when DiCaprio's basically getting arrested the first time in the movie, uh, trying to you know sell a convincing scene that he is a you know a mischief maker. He gets in a fight in a convenience store and he takes like a coat rack and he's like slamming, you know, these Italian gangsters faces. The two guys from, yeah. from Providence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't. I was like, ooh, that's that's a lot. Soundtrack really helps with that scene. That one is uh, the human beings with uh, nobody but me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think that the physical bludgeoning type uh, violence in this movie was throughout. Like it was present throughout. and. Um, well done to me. Uh, I'm not talking about like stage blocking and theater fighting. I'm, I'm just saying like when French punches a guy, he punches him. When you get yeah. pistol whipped and teeth fly out, you feel it, you hear it. There's a crunch to it. Uh, it, it happens quite a bit. Uh, fist fights between uh, Alec Baldwin and um, <laughs> who did he take? He takes that one guy down. The cameraman. Uh, for- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and there, there's a lot of uh, infighting between characters. Uh, I think there's a there's a moment under the bridge with uh, Queenan and Billy and uh, Billy hits somebody over the head with a picture of Jesus. That was awesome, and that's the beginning of that scene. Like that scene begins with there's a head, and then there's a, there's a picture coming down. Uh, Dignam and Billy get into it. I just uh, physical fighting like that that doesn't end with like a knockout is I think shown to be like a way of life a way of how things get solved you are Uh, right about that for scorsese he's he's said that like he's like it's not violence for the sake of violence so it's not tarantino (laughs) um it's not um but to him it's just like he doesn't glorify it he says um but it is absolutely the world that these people live in yeah there's no with, with those with those fist fighting things there's no like suffering there uh the people tend to get up and like okay yeah i guess i deserve that or that's kind of how things go. Um, there are other less violent instances of um, psychological suffering in other films, uh, whether or not there's a gun involved or a knife or torture. That like it, there's no, there's none of that in this movie. The the it, the, the violence happens and it's either a prolonged fistfight or it's a gunshot. And the, um and I think that's that's something that I how do I put this that I enjoy. Hmm, I don't know if that's the best way of putting it. it. The best way of putting it is that like you don't you don't need the suffering to go along with the violence, which makes me think like when you describe a movie as violent, you might think of pain or agony. 
And I don't know if there's a lot of, in terms of the violence in this, pain or agony. You get a lot of headshots and a lot of drop, you know, this person drops dead. Uh, um, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll, another thing that I never forgot was uh, Billy's arm was in a cast. And Mr. French, Ray Renson's character, takes his arm and just slams it down on a pool table. And, you know, and then uh, Costello comes with a big boot and slams it on him. He's like, are you a cop? And like, he's like, I'm not a cop. Uh, you know, I I almost found that more. Uh, is this saying more about me? I almost found that like more funny or humorous. Maybe it's because the boot was like kind of floppy in his hand. I thought for a second, like, how did they get through that in one take without like laughing about it? Uh, wow! I, yeah, I'm I not. Know. Byron, do not hand dust in your shoe, by the way. There, there is uh, ongoing narrative about me and violence with this podcast, so maybe I need to back off about this. But yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say that like there was no agony, but the, you know, th- there's times with uh, with fear and or uh, the uncertainty of of um, surviving or even you know getting through with your well being, uh, and then there's also times when like that's the focus of the scene and then there's the time where it's like the character then has a moment to bear like bear their true self like we have the the moment in the in the elevator as they're going down um colin is in cuffs and he's just says to billy just kill me just kill me and like that kind of psychological like this is the end is the for me like that's the type of suffering that can sometimes turn me off but it was important at that time of the movie to say, like, all right, have you reached the end? Uh, it's a great chance for these actors to show with great writing, like, what is this character feeling? How 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 deep is the what is running through their minds? Uh, things that I like this podcast helps me with so much is just revisiting these like micro moments. And like, oh, that's that's just so well done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's interesting. I think I think. Is it fair to say, and I think I might be able to say this with both of you, like when you guess the number of F-bombs in the movie, it was like <laughs> a third of what there was. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, ha- did in the course of a two and a half hour movie that you become sucked into this world so effectively, which is praise to Scorsese, that you, when you start to slow down and, and go through it all, it's just like, oh yeah, there's a lot of violence in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I, I found it interesting. They're both kind of coming through. It's like, it's largely at the end or like, I like it. It was funny. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting there going like, wow, Scorsese, Scorsese gotcha. He, he got you on the hook and he yeah. pulled you in. It is one of those things where you, when you, when you step back and you go, wow, is this was a tough movie. You're right though, Byron. I do think Goodfellas is meaner is a better way of putting it. Yeah. 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 Scorsese, though, did say that this was a highly unpleasant experience in making the movie, much like what Byron was saying. He called it moral ground zero. All the characters are killed in the end, basically everyone anyway, and uh, no one has anywhere to go after that. You know, I hardly did any press for the film. I was tired of it. It was maddening, and I just felt like the picture... um, He said, I like it, but the process of making it, uh, particularly in post-production, was just most unpleasant for him. And uh, you do have to wonder, this is like his fifth gangster movie to the point of just like, yeah, why don't you make more movies like Hugo then? (laughs) (laughs) I I think I share his sentiment, which was um, I tend to also get uncomfortable, even with my previous career. I get to be, I I get uncomfortable when I'm around too many cops or I'm around too many uniformed like officers. Like I I think I would rather be in the room filled with uh, filled with the guys getting things done the hard way on the streets than the people wearing uniforms uh how did how did uh how did colin put it like oh you like showing up every day dressed like you're gonna go invade poland 
Yeah, yeah. Well, there were a lot of gangsters as well as policemen giving influence to this movie. DiCaprio talked to people of Irish, uh, Irish gang connections. Uh, you know, he gained a lot of, uh, you know, muscle weight for the role. And, uh, you know, as he adapted his performance, much like I mentioned earlier with uh, Vera Firminga, there's a there's there's cops and gangsters involved with making this movie. And Scorsese said uh, when making gangster movies, as he's done many times before, uh, he certainly knows them. He knows their world. It was a structure that he grew up in in New York City. And uh, he was uh, an unhealthy kid who had asthma and he wasn't pulled into this as much. So like he ended up going to the theater and being more of a creative kid more so. But it was absolutely a world that he grew up in in an Italian community in New York City. And these gangster movies um, kind of speak to him in a way. And it's interesting to your point, Dustin, he was saying that having the police around on stage was more unnerving than it was the gangsters. <laughs> so uh, Scorsese shares your opinion on that completely. So Well, and this is also just part of me um, as, as, as Dustin the person, not Dustin the podcast host. Uh, who just had when it comes to uh, social hierarchy of who we hold in esteem over others, uh, you know, w- people in uniform versus people that aren't, uh, haves versus have-nots. This is th- th- things that put you at a disadvantage in just a simple conversation, and one of those things is a uniform, and another thing is a firearm. So th- th- these are situations where I, that's where I, where I mean, like I sh- I shared exactly what you just said about Scorsese with the officers on stage. Like, yeah, I'm not I'm not super comfortable. I don't I don't look around every room thinking am I outnumbered by different types of people but when I'm outnumbered by people in uniform I usually am looking for the exit. Well, you're getting along with Martin Scorsese pretty well then on this one. So, yeah. Uh Mar- Marty Mark and the Funky Bunch featuring Dusty Dustin his second Funky Bunch. We we should work on this. Yeah. Uh and I was watching an interview with with Scorsese. Uh he was saying a lot of what I was talking about, this was a world he grew up in, but he specifically spoke about his father took him to a double feature in 1931 of The Public Enemy and Little Caesar and other movies like White Heat come out and James Cagney playing this gangster role. Uh, Warner Brothers in particular, he said, was allowing a lot of rougher content to come out. And this just connected with him as a filmmaker. And it absolutely comes through throughout his filmmaking. It's Critics have gone back and said those early films, while rough, or the certain way, by the time you get up to Scorsese's work in the 70s and 80s, or, well, 90s and 2000s, is he brings a lot of legitimacy and reality to it. If his world that he paints in his gangster movies are very, very, very realistic. And it, again, he kind of had a foot into that world where he could see into that world, and he's bringing it to you as a filmmaker. And that's why he's so applauded for these things. So... I still enjoy his other kinds of movies, as we've talked about. Like, I, I like The Aviator. I like Hugo. I like Shutter Island. And so I feel like he's just a good filmmaker. What do you think about the taking this Chinese story and adapting it uh, to Boston? And again, th- there was precedent through the Whitey Bulger culture there that this all fit Boston. This story fit like a glove. Um, Byron, what do you think about this Boston cultural setting and this climate that we have here? I I find films set in Boston interesting. Just the the community, I guess, of that area. 
it's just such a such a unique setting i find compared to some other uh places of the country um i'm trying to think of some other movies that were set in it's an interesting juxtaposition because you have cambridge where you have mit and harvard but then also the south boston is notoriously very rough and as you pointed out it has this uh culture that we don't often see in movies we see los angeles we see um new york depicted a lot but i like being imported into this world i think the town with ben affleck is another one far less realistic than this one or even goodwill hunting you know i like i like visiting this world i don't want to live in it or the fighter that's another good one with um christian bale and 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 mark Wahlberg. so yeah i'm trying to think of the one with casey affleck where they were investigating a child that was oh gone baby gone yes that which sounds like a I don't know, like a like a cheerful song, like yeah. And that movie is anything but. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it was a dark one. Um, yeah. In fact, I think no. Sorry, I'm thinking of Gone, Gone, Gone. I was thinking there's Robert Plant, uh, Alison Krauss yeah. crossover song, but uh, Gone Baby Gone sure sounds like that. <laughs> and uh, Mystic River, I think that was in the same area, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 So, uh, Dustin. Boston setting, what do you think about it? I was about to pipe in about the Boston setting. I, I have never been, but based on the movies and or TV shows that use it as a setting, you almost feel as if you know it, even if you've never been. Uh, I only know the theatrical Boston, but the theatrical Boston seems to be a place where, um, what do we have the, the quote early in this movie, which is, uh, you become a cop or you become a criminal. Obviously, that's not the case in real life. But the way that this is framed, that the, the, the film of Boston is framed, is like, that's kind of what you do. You find a way to make a little extra scratch by selling some Coke. Well, uh, apparently you do, yeah, unless you're a cop. I was going to uh, say, Mark Wahlberg did say, if you grew up in South Boston, you're going to become a construction worker, a cop, or a criminal. And, and you find the way that Colin talks to Madeline. Wait, Madeline? Do I have that name right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Uh, he's asking about this job as a psychiatrist and you're like the the non-law enforcement professionals of this world have no play that it's like that world is doesn't exist uh an architect doesn't exist in boston because you're not a cop or a criminal well i'm not going to, to go that far but i will say you, you, there's there's no the, there the psychiatrist is like oh you went to school and you became this Going to school and becoming some other type of professional is not touched upon unless you're an attorney, in which case you're an attorney for, uh, you know, the district, the DA or prosecutor, mm-hmm. or you're a mob lawyer. Uh, makes me think of a, a great short story arc from 30 Rock, the show with Tina Fey uh, and Alec Baldwin, where you've got one of the characters who has a dream of becoming a lawyer his Boston mom doesn't want him to become a lawyer because all of the family's lawyers are mob lawyers. Like, so like going to school to get your law degree means you're going to end up working for the mob. So I, I, I find that I find the Boston setting creates this kind of dichotomy that I don't have to work that hard to separate like the reality from the film version. It's just kind of a fun world to live in. You're either on, um, you're either on the criminal side or the cop side uh, we don't need to worry about the veterinarians or we don't need to worry about the um, actuaries or the uh, insurance adjusters. Make, I actually say actuaries don't make good movies. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if I'm being unfair to any of our actuary listeners, 
but yeah, the, the the dichotomy of like this, you're either on this side or the other, and then you get a movie like this where you have the sides and you have the rats on both sides um, gave a fresh take on what I'm not going to say that it's like tried or tired or or wrote, but like this is kind of what you expect Boston to be in the in the movies that portray it. And this one gives you, um, you know, the double agents and the secrecy and the deception with both the organizations. I've uh, found it enjoyable. And in addition to the State House of Massachusetts, which we called out, I definitely want to call out, uh, I like to point out architecture movies, Paul Rudolph's uh, Government Service Center, which is a 1962 brutalist building. Uh, it's an era of building that's sometimes unloved, but this this building is pretty cool. This is the this is the concrete building that you see uh, being shot where Queenum, Dignum, uh, Alec Baldwin's character, as well as Matt Damon's character are all working. Those really cool stairs that kind of swoop down from this heroic uh, concrete uh, structure with this corduroy concrete on it. It's it's so cool. And uh, again, that's very Boston. However, Scorsese couldn't, uh, you know, he spent $90 million on just the cast. And so um, he wanted to film this in Boston, but they accidentally shot in three weeks in Boston uh, in, in summer. and um most of the filming was done in new york as well or not most of it but a large part of it was done in new york as well so uh south boston doesn't necessarily you're not dripping with landmarks such as the beacon hill kind of moment the boston public library etc they're not they're not out there to sightsee but they're also not really immersing you in it and i'm disappointed in that in a way that says you know you do have a large budget. Your score says you can do whatever you want to do. I'm sad that, you know, government taxes and all that stuff worked out the way that this couldn't be entirely filmed in Boston. So, well, I'm certain there are the things about Boston, you having been there, or the, the, the things about what, like, its community and uh, physical structures that are important. Uh, but, and I'm not, I'm not trying to take away from that at all. But being as a guy that's not, you know, familiar with the Northeast that much. I don't think there was any aspect of this that made me ever think um, that you're in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially with a lot of the interior stuff, like with with like the the bars uh, or the, the the bar setting or the back room setting or the you know the the maintenance uh, type room where somebody's getting beaten up or an apartment, uh, whether that's on the ground floor uh, and someone's getting their their head smashed in with a picture of Jesus or wh- whatever it is. I, it, you, I don't feel as if um, that I was out of place from, from the, the film. I'll tell you what was to New York. Jack Nicholson refused to wear a Boston Red Sox hat right. during this movie and wore a yeah. Yankees hat instead. And I was just thinking, is this guy the ultimate bandwagon fan? But uh, because I know he's, he's an infamous Lakers fan, um, uh, which doesn't make me like him, to be honest with you. I hate the Lakers. But uh, you know, his hatred of Boston as a Laker fan is just so real. He wore a Yankees hat to stick it to him. So uh, boo, Jack yeah, Nicholson. He, he would not wear the Red Sox hat. Uh, good for him. I, I, I always appreciate when people take that seriously. Uh, and I also appreciate these kids out there, these whippersnappers out there that are just wearing sports attire because the fit looks good. Hey, the fit does look good, but there's no way you'll ever catch me, no matter how much yellow or purple accent that I want with an outfit I'm wearing, never catch me in Lakers gear, I'll tell you that. Uh, well, you won't catch me in Lakers gear unless you're paying me millions of dollars to be in a movie, in which case Martin Scorsese could tell me, you need to wear the Lakers jersey. And I'd be like, how much are you paying me? <laughs> all right but you're gonna right, adapt good. to digitally superimpose it onto my body like you like like removed henry cavill's mustache in justice league so <laughs> yeah would that be better yeah we can do that 
Because if I actually put it on me, it will burn. It will burn. Oh, I, I need to bring this up. While we were attending University of Tennessee, there was a moment, uh, if you remember, I was involved with the marching band uh, and I was in leadership there. Yeah. There was a moment where I wore a gray t-shirt and some, we'll say, kind of maroon, like burgundy style basketball shorts. And uh, the director of bands walked up to me and said, Dustin, go talk to Judy. We're going to take you to Dick's Sporting Goods and we're going to buy you some orange and white. If anybody sees you wearing Alabama co- colors, then, then you're done. And at that point, I went and got, you know, $200 worth of like, you know, thank you, uh, University of Tennessee Athletics Department for helping me with that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be wearing the sports logo or the colors of a team that I despise. Yeah, yeah. I loved the hairstyle choice for Dignum. I thought it was <laughs> so weird. But at the same time, it made him look juvenile, which is how he acted. And yeah. it just tied into the whole mystique. I guess of him just being a complete jerk, and I, I love. Yeah, that did make him more of the a jerk face cop for sure. Yeah, you know, I thought Madeline was overdressed. Like she's she's uh, elevated. They pointed <laughs> out that she's not the highest paid person in her position, and that she's a government worker, and uh, she's she, she's sharply dressed. And I think that that's done on purpose, actually, to make it look like again, education equals status in this movie. And just as much as Matt Damon's looking at Beacon Hill uh, as Billy's, sorry, as much as um, Colin's character yearns for that world, she is a piece of that world that he wants to be part of. And I think actually overdressing her was a deliberate choice to make her seem classier, even though she's not that classy of a lady. She didn't know how to attack that dessert they brought out. That dessert was too tall, like, uh, what, eight inches long. That's never (laughs) been too big from what I heard. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, I, I did like that kind of when that dessert's brought out and they both kind of don't know how to deal with the the, the like the, the swankiness of this place. Um, but I also thought to myself, like in that conversation at dinner, uh, she I think she's a her, her honesty, uh, her honesty about lying. And then just her like her character as far as being in a relationship or being interested in, you know, a, a partner. But she says something that made me, it sounded like a real thing you would hear at a date. I think she said, um, what, you didn't like your lobster? Like it was like a real question asked. And it's once again, a thing about the relationships in this film that like seemed very real. Uh, My first episode ever on this, on this podcast was uh, another Matt Damon flick, the adjustment bureau. And we, we talked about how uh, all of the banter and the talk between uh, Emily Blunt and Matt Damon seemed very real. And I will say at least early on in the relationship uh, with, with Colin and Madeline, like they, they were talking, it was, it felt realistic. It did. Yeah. Like, uh, give me a card. Uh, nah, I don't need it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a detective. I'm a detective. I'll find you. I'll find you. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just kidding. I need the card. <laughs> but it did, it did bother me that he was holding the elevator for all those, like all those people couldn't get to their floor. Uh, <laughs> it was funny. And then like the third time it tried to close, I, I put myself like I transported myself into that mm-hmm. elevator and got it. Just close the deal, get the number I'm late for a meeting. Let's go. <laughs> but it shows you that he's a charming liar, which is it carries beyond what he does there. So uh, now I think one of the bigger bold moves that they made with some of the wardrobe, because most of it's pretty standard affair. Um, Costello, Byron. What do you think about Costello? He's got some pretty wild stuff. Yeah, um, that was pretty interesting. And I actually saw somewhere that, um, and I don't know, I guess they had a stylist or something look at the film, and they felt that 
Costello's wardrobe heavily leaned towards someone that was homosexual? Hmm. Well, he does have like a like lavender jacket at one point. He has a leopard tie with like a purple shirt on. Um, he's got like this weird striped white and purple kind of jacket that I, I sit there and I go like, man, I don't even know if you can sell that jacket in Miami, much less Boston. Like, I don't like who's buying this stuff. Um, no, it's a good point. Yeah. And even when he wears just like a trench coat to the Chinese drug, uh, sorry, uh, microchip deal, um, he's uh, wearing a weird like microprocessors. Yeah, microprocessors. It's a uh, bucket hat. It's a it's a dumb hat. He looks dumb in it. But everything else that he wears, I love. But I hate that bucket hat. Might as well have a Lakers logo on it. Uh, but in a way, that's unpredictable like him. We talked about Nicholson bringing this character into the realm of unpredictability. So I don't know. It's a good good point, Byron. Like, it's not what you'd expect. I mean, if you look at like the Godfather, you know, when you're the head of a mob gang, you're well-dressed. And if I was the head of a crime world, I would uh, have the nicest Tom Ford and Armani suits to uh, to, to select from. So um He's definitely not going with that route. I think if I were a, a mafia boss, I would go the route of the, the scene after he's wearing the leopard print tie uh, the next morning where he uh, takes the hand out of the plastic bag over breakfast. He's wearing either a leopard print or a jaguar print robe. And I think I think that's probably my that's goal your mob boss is to eventually with whatever situation I'm in, if I'm if. If I'm in a position where I'm wearing a robe and nobody's questioning me, then I've made it. Uh, I think I'd probably end up going the same route as you, some kind of Tom Ford, Armani suit kind of kind of ensemble. Nice. Yeah. Penstripes? Sure. Yeah. It's part of being a gangster. Classy, yeah. Yeah. Um, Byron, any kind of soundtrack moments that stuck out for you? Um was there anything besides Dropkick Murphy? <laughs> there were. Just... There were. There were other things. Uh, yes, uh, but uh, yeah. So uh, Dropkick Murphy has definitely stuck out for you, and I will admit yeah. it stuck out a lot for me. It was more, um, I guess, the embrace of Boston culture they wanted to capture with that song. They definitely did, but uh, uh, too jarring for you, Byron. Like, did it fit? I can't. Uh, I can't separate it from the film okay. after after watching it so maybe maybe a little too much but um i i enjoyed it i i remember it being in the trailer and it really got me motivated to go see it i just think in 2006 maybe i would have i i wouldn't have rolled my eyes at at that uh dropkick murphy's uh ship it up to boston uh twice in the movie I, I probably wouldn't have rolled my eyes back then but since then it's kind of become a trope that if you're going to reference boston you throw that in um, as far as the rest, I did mention the, the human beings the, the, I love the, I, that particularly violent scene, uh, where he's, he's beating up the two guys from Providence. I really, I really like the music in there. Uh, last episode we were in, there was a, uh, there was a, a cover or a version of a song that I did not like. And even though, um, the version of comfortably numb that's used in this, in this movie, uh, does have Roger Waters involved. I, I, I really didn't like it's. When you when you love a song like "Comfortably Numb," which I believe is uh, <clears throat> uh, number six on the the wall track listing on disc two, like this is one of those songs that like I fell in love with certain versions of it as I was growing up, and then I heard this version, and it, and it, it unfortunately it took me out. Sometimes sometimes covers or reimaginings of songs, because uh, this one was sung with uh, Van Morrison. Like th- this was this was something that, that kind of took me out, but I was happy with everything else that was happening so because of that i, I didn't let it um 
bother me too much. So comfortably numb plays when Jack Nicholson throws a handful of cocaine over two, uh, two uh, over his dates, which might be prostitutes for all I know, but uh, over the back yeah. of them. So you were okay with everything else in that scene except for the comfortably numb. Tot- I actually really liked. <laughs> I actually really liked that scene. Uh, I really liked that scene. Uh, I also. I think it's also a a part of the scene when um, Billy and Madeline are undressing, about to do the deed. I think it kind of lingers into that scene as well it does yeah um so yeah. so that that was good i will say that there's moments here where in the movie where ending the song abruptly as if yeah. you just hit the stop button on your what do the kids call it ipod uh when, when you just like, kind of hit the stop button and it, and it ends and it signifies the end of a call or the end of a scene or the end of like a tense moment um that happens with like sort of the rock music uh, that happens with the opera music as well. Uh, I, I wasn't. I did prepare a little bit to talk about like my 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 beliefs on the use of classical and or opera music uh, in in movies. Uh, and in this movie, I thought the opera didn't take away, uh, but I also don't know if it added anything. But the the use of how abruptly the songs stop as a filmmaking technique. Uh, as opposed to just having songs in the movie. But I, I found that really well done. Well, I uh, so Comfortably Numb left you uncomfortably feeling uh, mm-hmm. in this one. And for me, the Gimme Shelter. Like, I think this is the Martin Scorsese song. He definitely uses it in Goodfellas, and apparently he uses it in Casino as well. So this is, this the, is the third time. Yeah, third time he goes back to it. So um, in fairness, if you do the flashback, to that vietnam time setting or whatever uh you know what somehow that like that like like something about that does kind of feel like a like the like uh tv sitcoms use a wavy like wavy effects on the side of the screens right the classier way of doing that is playing the rolling stones give me shelter shelter. yeah uh i i i was unrelated i was um looking into overused movie songs for trailers. And I mean it unrelated. I, I'm not, I, I'm not throwing shade at this, but uh, I think Gimme Shelter is really starting to get to that point of like where I, it better be great if you're using it uh, in a trailer, if you're using it in a movie. And, or it uh, should be about somebody who needs housing. Yeah. For, yeah. For instance, that's one of the three basic needs. The, the song I was thinking of that is currently overused is uh, Edward Grieg in the Hall of the Mountain King is just too. Oh, that's too, fun. It's a great song. I love it. I don't love it when it's in every other trailer. Uh, I think the worst use of it was in 2010's Dinner for Schmucks. Uh, so it's, it's, it's one of these things where this song has power, and especially if you've seen it like done live, and then when you throw it into... Um, it was also in the trailer for Funny Games, uh, which actually elevated that trailer. But it, it, like, Gimme Shelter, unfortunately, is getting to that point to where I'm like, oh, man, if you're going to use it, it better be a masterpiece. And I will say... Uh, Departed is so high on my list that it's it's I, I was um, not made uncomfortable by it. Okay, now are you guys ready to hand out some awards? Yeah, let's do it. All right, yeah, <laughs> all right. MVP Byron, uh, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dustin MVP. For me, it is Leo. It's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's acting. I really enjoy him in a role where things are a struggle where things aren't coming easy to him, uh, where things maybe aren't going great. He's got pressure on him. Uh, he, I think he portrayed a role of somebody needing help, maybe even needing shelter, needing uh, drugs. Give me Billy Costigan over 
Great Gatsby. No, oh, I mean, yeah. give me give me a gritty Leo over Wolf of Wall Street. You know what I'm saying? Like that. That's this is this is him showing off his chops, and I think he's the MVP. Okay, I'm gonna go with uh, Martin Scorsese. I don't always like when he puts me in this world, but I think Byron nailed it. Adding the police side of the story and everybody spying on everybody. And to some point, Scorsese said this was his first movie with a plot. I like plots. So having a movie with a plot is a good thing. Plots are good. Yeah, plots are good. Uh, so good job, good on you, Martin Scorsese. This is this is your only movie to date that you've gotten Best Picture on. And, you know, I'm going to go with you on this one. So uh, Best Supporting Actor, Byron. This one's tough. Yeah, for me, I went with uh, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. I found him really entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, he he got nominated for an Oscar. That's a great choice, Dustin. Best and supporting, he sh- and he should have been nominated because uh, it was a great, uh, it was a great supporting role. And I knew one of you would choose it, so I actually went with Martin Sheen as Queenan. Uh, I, I we learn. I think he maybe does the best of separating his work life and his home life. You do learn, like you see his house. Uh, I, I I think the scene I liked the most was when he welcomes Billy in, and he says. Uh, like, uh, let's get you something to eat. And he says, no, which a lot of like loner characters do is like, no, I don't need anything. No, no. My wife left some supper out. Get you something to eat. Come on. Uh, it seemed like family. And that character, like Martin Sheen in that role is actually one of the reasons why I went back and watched Catch Me If You Can, because he's also a father figure in that movie uh, to one of the love interests in Catch Me If You Can. Uh, another yeah. great scene that happens in a kitchen, just kind of a, it made me feel good. Nice warm moment there. I'm going to go with Mark Wahlberg as well, but uh, Byron stated it, and so many good things have been said about him. I'm just going to give a nod to Alec Baldwin. He's a truly dislikable, despicable character in this one, and you do want somebody to punch him. Like Especially when he's like, the Patriot Act, I love it! <laughs> it's like, would <laughs> yeah. somebody just punch this guy? Like, I mean, it's like, are you one of those fitness guys? <laughs> yeah that's a pretty good that when he when he is about to drench his uh, face in the bowl of ice water uh, which i love i love anytime that's used in a, in a movie uh when he's like moving his head down and the camera tracks him did you think he was about to do a line i guess i could I that's did. what i that's what i expected i did I, <laughs> yeah he says something like yeah you're a cop and then i i've um, i Really thought he was going to just swack a fat rail and instead, no, it's just the ice water. I didn't mention this earlier, but I think when we were talking about in the uh, giant uh, jerk debate, I feel like Alec Baldwin's character is thoroughly, (laughs) unintentionally so a a jerk. Like, I feel like Dignam goes home and he's like, uh, you know, I don't feel like he's like a jerk at home. He just hates all the people that he works with and doesn't like all these departments and the politics of it. I feel like Alec Baldwin's character is 100% a jerk. He was a jerk in like middle school. He's a jerk now, and he'll be a jerk in the retirement home too. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. So, uh, hidden gem, Byron. Uh, I'm gonna go with Ray Winstone as Mr. French. That was the first time I'd ever seen uh, that actor in any film, and he will always be a tough man. Like a oh, tough he is. Guy. Yeah, he was. He was tough in this. Yeah. Great call, yeah. Dustin. Hidden gem. Read my mind. That's mine too. Uh, is uh, Ray Winstone? I I will say I I always appreciated like the number one or the henchman uh he works until the very end uh he is reliable i believe even in the movie he says like i'm reliable and he's i think the the good thing about this particular character is mr french is um he's not dumb i don't think he's dim-witted or dumb and sometimes sometimes henchmen get that as a not a crutch but like as a flaw like oh they're they're just not that bright i think we have a couple not that bright guys in this movie but he's not he knows what he's doing. So he's my hidden gem too. Good pick. 
My hidden jib's going to be a non-speaking role. Uh, we see DiCaprio walking through an airport walkway, like, and he's on the telephone, and he's emphasizing how what what a dangerous position he's in. And uh, there's a little girl uh, behind, uh, with standing with a man, and uh, that little girl is Martin Scorsese's daughter. So that's yeah. I I always like those familial connections. So paint backpack. Yep. Now recast Byron. If you had to recast somebody, because it's a pretty strong cast. Who are you recasting, and who are you going to put in their place? It's a tough thing to do, but it's got to be done. It's going to so, be wicked hot. Here's what I'm going to do. I want to go full Boston and recommend that the role of Billy Costigan be played by Ben Affleck instead of Leonardo DiCaprio. And then we get the Ben Affleck v. Matt Damon. Oh, uh, yeah. That we, I think I, I've always wanted to see. It's not it's not as good of an actor, but I, I you did sell it to me. I, I, I don't know that I want it in this movie, but I want it in a movie for sure. So you're yeah. right. Yeah, that's an interesting point and definitely authentic. So uh, I appreciate the authenticity. DiCaprio's accent's not bad, but it's not nah. it's not as it's not uh, genuine like Damon and uh, Wahlberg's. Uh, what about you, Dustin? Recast. I think we need on the organized crime side another no, an, another known commodity, um, and I, so I'm not trying to besmirch uh, Mark Ralston as Della Hunt, but I was thinking maybe if we had somebody like Walton Goggins in that role. Um, I was also thinking about Paul Dano, but I don't think he's he was old enough yet to be somebody that had been inside the organization for too long. So I'm going to stick with Walton Goggins as Della Hunt. Well, yeah, yeah, he's a dislikable guy. He's uh, you like to dislike him. Yeah, yeah. Is, is what I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My recast is going to be. Uh, this is hard. I like Vera Farmiga. She did a great job. So, but we got to play the game, and so play the game. I shall. I felt like there were some moments where she was forcing her Boston accent a little bit hard, and so I'm going to go with Sarah Rafferty. Yeah, uh, she's from the TV show Suits. She, I, I tried to find a Boston actress. Connecticut's about as close as I could get, unfortunately, but uh, it's New England area. I think uh, she has humor, charm, and presence on the show. Um, and I would kick the tires on her at very least. She's got a good sense of backbone <laughs> to her. And uh, I would uh, I would think that uh, in an audition, I'd like to at least see her in there. So I, I can't say I want Vera Farminga out, but uh, if I had to, Sarah Rafferty is who I'm calling. Uh, best shot, uh, uh, Byron. Uh, I really enjoyed the panning shot. I mentioned that earlier, right after the title card, which is Colin on the balcony of his apartment and Billy walking, uh, working out in the cell. Uh, I just thought that was really interesting. Yep. There's a lot of fast cuts in that early part of the movie. A lot of fast cuts. Um, Dustin, how about you? Best shot. I, I may have uh, tipped my hand earlier, but it's it's the breakfast scene uh with the hand in a plastic bag uh how casual that's being done um and then there's a moment in this particular scene where gwen uh is like you hear the sound of a door closing and uh and nicholson's character uh like looks up uh costello looks up and says what what is it now and she looks back to him she like straightens her jacket and goes choir practice and for a moment in you can see the costello like doing like a calculation in his head. Maybe he's thinking of his schedule. Maybe he's thinking of the things important in his life. And ah, yeah, wire And it then goes straight back to uh, the dismembered hand. And so like that particular like shot is 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 great for me. Okay, yeah. And I'm gonna go with the climax scene where uh, we see Billy on the outside of the roof access doorway when Colin comes up and then he holds him at gunpoint. Uh, you see Billy's face and then you see the door open, the pan, the, the camera pans to the left and then 
turns to capture that action of the two of them together. And they are meeting and they've met before, but this time everybody, all cards are on the table and now they're meeting. And so what a great moment it is. And the camera work reinforces that best scene. Byron, uh, my, my favorite scene was when Billy and Frank were discussing the identity of the rat uh, and the gang at the bar. Uh, I thought Nicholson's facial expressions were priceless when he was pantomiming like a rat as he discussed it. Um, it really looked like he was losing his mind. Uh, and I also loved Leo's expression when Frank dropped his gun and then picked it up and pointed it at him. Uh, like the silent shock look on his face just felt really authentic, um, which makes sense since it was apparently ad-libbed. That's mine as well, actually, and uh, for sure. Dustin, what about you? Best scene? For me, it is between Billy and Madeline when they are, uh, when he is sort of in the chair and she is at work. And, and they're, 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 I guess this is what he's court ordered to do. Not court ordered. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the scene where he is getting emotional, that, that ends in him requesting Valium, uh, it, it, and then afterwards she kind of rushes after him. I thought uh, his acting in that was was great. Uh, I know that you had mentioned that the, the 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 person that she shadowed like for the role said that she did everything wrong, but I think that's what made the scene great. Uh, was was there? This was kind of the beginning of what becomes their relationship, uh, and uh, I I really do like seeing Leo act as someone who is maybe up against the ropes or needs help. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about wardrobe, more than usual, actually, which was fun. But what's your top moment of wardrobe or makeup, Byron? Yeah, I, I guess I tipped my hand too early. But again, Mark Wahlberg's hair is priceless. Great. It's more more on Mark Wahlberg here in a little bit. But Dustin? This is uh, Jack Nicholson wearing that same leopard print tie that you mentioned. But uh, I don't remember the color of the shirt. But he's also wearing that with a houndstooth jacket. Uh, I don't believe it's a full houndstooth like a check. suit. Like the checkered kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, those, those purple. particular checks. He had a purple oh. shirt with that, so it was a wild get-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's something something that uh, the Joker would wear. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was uh, a striking scene, and uh, but the wardrobe kind of shows his eccentricity. Or, I was going to say, or somebody even crazier than Jack Torrance, or even crazier than the Joker, a Laker fan would wear. Ooh. And that one <laughs> crazy... That crazy Laker fan that sits next to Jack at you know whatever his name is or whatever his fame is, that guy is dressed like a chic scarecrow. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for Laker fans, by the way. I just got a Laker. I'm not. Yeah. No, we don't have to apologize <laughs> for this, man. Enjoy your first round exit, la bum. <laughs> My wardrobe moment's gonna go to Mark Wahlberg. Uh, there's where he and Alec Baldwin share a scene, and they're jawing at each other at the briefing in uh, the government building. There, uh, he has a tan shirt on, very crisp, uh, dark brown pants, and his tie's got the diagonal black brown, dark brown diagonal tie, and uh, brown belt, and he's got his gun holsters uh, prominently shown, even though he's in the middle of a government building on both sides and they kind of look like suspenders it's a very tough almost 70s look like i got a very steve mcqueen vibe off of him on this one so uh all all tan spectrum on this one and uh i i liked it yeah gonna go with dignum on this one so change one thing byron um i had seen a lot of fans of the movie talking about this but um a lot of people didn't like the rat at the end on the on the railing yeah yeah, it didn't bother me so much too on the nose for you yeah i guess i'd take the rat out okay 
Okay. There was a Kickstarter to take it out and somebody got their money to do it. And then obviously it's not his rights to the movie to do it, even though he's right. capable of doing it. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, then he had a cease and desist thing. So stop doing that. So uh, um, yeah. So you can't go fix other people's movies. Sorry, Chad Robinson out there, wherever you are, you cannot go back and fix all three prequel movies to Star Wars. So no matter how much Kickstarter you get for it. So um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Yeah, I was going to say, more power to you. Uh, Dustin, change one thing for you. I like I like this particular one. This is, um, at the very end, not the rat, but right before it. End of the movie before pulling the trigger. The shot of the milk and the bagels spilling out of, uh, of uh, Colin's bag is, you know, an important shot, perhaps. But uh, when you see uh, Dignam in the cleaner's outfit, you know, with the booties on, you know what's going to happen. You you know what sh- like is is likely going to happen. So just end it before the trigger's pulled. Maybe even with the sound of the hammer going back, and hmm. then end it there. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm not a filmmaker, but I I thought to myself, ooh, that because I believe there were talks about a sequel where Wahlberg would be the star, and I thought to myself like this could present something, but. I also came to the movie 15 years later. Um, but yeah, I thought that could be cool. My change one thing's going to be aggressive here, but Dignam needs to be there to shoot Colin in the elevator um, after. But I want I want Billy to get shot, but not in the head and like in a stomach where he can still get like, you know, he's he's wounded, but not mortally. And like he's going to make it and then Colin gets shot. I feel like that's a Western kind of thing that I would like to inject here. Of I, I, Crime destroys, but I kind of want good to prevail here. So um, I don't mind Dignam being the guy who uh, shoots Colin. I just want it to happen, you know, an afternoon or a day or whatever, however long that it takes to go to a grocery store uh, before. Uh, oh, I wanted to bring this up when you said this earlier. Uh, the crime organization, with all of the deaths and the leadership being gone, and the mole inside of the police department being dead, it's not quite the same, but is if the crime organization fails, is that the same as good prevailing? Because the good I, guys I, I do think win. it is because, I mean, Costello is truly evil, like, in every way, shape, or form. Even if you have an honor among thieves, he's not honorable. Like, he's truly, like, there's, no, there's nothing you can like about Costello. Yeah, in, in the end, law enforcement continues and Costello's group is, uh, at least the small group that we are seeing most of the movie, is eradicated. Uh, so it, it, it's not quite the same as seeing like the good guy walk into the sunset, but uh, for the crime organization to fail, it's, it's, it's close to good prevailing. Really. No, that's a good point. But I just, I didn't, I guess I didn't like watching Billy go down. So, but no, neither did I. Yeah. So anyway, that's my, it's a big change, but uh, that's my change. Byron, best quote. Uh, a lot of good quotes here. Yes. Um, my best quote was from Dignam. Uh, my theory on feds is they're like mushrooms. Feed them crap and keep them in the dark. Yep. <laughs> that's, yes. that that's a classic line, yeah. Uh, Dustin, best quote. And I'm going Dignam too. And mine is uh, the, the guy who installed the cameras goes like, who do you think you are? And Dignam responds, I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. Yeah. Yep. And that would have been mine, but I've got a runner-up just in case. It was haunting in the beginning, especially once you know who how terrible Costello is. Um, when he goes, I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. And they're showing clips of not exactly the nicest clips of a neighborhood. So um, haunting. So And a great quote in several different contexts. 
of uh, do you let your environment change you or do you change your environment uh lesson now byron what would you give this movie on a five star scale with half star intervals uh solid 4.5 yeah like what knocked it down out of that top what would make it a five for you um i feel like if it had been a little bit shorter yeah (laughs) maybe trim maybe trimmed a little bit more i probably would have give it a perfect score nice Okay, now Dustin, what about you? What's what's your rating here? I'm very lucky to have uh, got to you know explore this movie like as a first time basis with the critical eye of this uh, podcast like kind of guiding me. Uh, this is a four and a half star. It, it was uh, tour de force to watch. It earned all the accolades that it earned. Um, it's not a perfect movie. It, I don't know a way in which it could be a five star movie. Um, it's one of those th- that maybe should I, and when I watch it again, maybe I say like this is a masterpiece. But I think when it comes to thrillers like this, um, once you know it, you know it. And I almost want to kind of keep it as I saw it the one time it was impactful. It was very good. And then that's I kind of just leave it alone. Uh, I, I But four and a half, a very high score for me. Yeah, yeah, and I'm going to make it a straight run of four and a half, and I think I alluded to a number of times, just, you know, Billy making it out of here probably would have gotten to a five for me, because the intricacy of the plot, the acting, the direction, everything's on point here, and I totally respect that it won Best Picture of the Year award, and, you know, I do own this movie, but I would more, I would pull it out more often with a with with leonardo dicaprio you know maybe in the hospital like you know getting a thumbs up from dignam while like uh you cue some like drop kick murphy's one more time wow 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 of course it would happen a third time yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i'm i'm laying it on a little thick here obviously <laughs> um i'm not saying they both need to have thumbs up with a freeze frame and a zoom out slow like from a 1970s tv show but it, I, I it do... can't end worse than stand and deliver ended yeah that was a bad one (laughs) yeah it was so uh yeah i don't i don't need that but i do need i need something to pick me up because when scorsese said i had a hard time in post-production doing this i think that's why i don't pick this movie up more often so um but yeah now dustin do you want to help me pick a movie for next time i'm here to help yeehaw we're rounding them up and headed out to the wild west Okay, listen, all you lords and ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, it truly pains me that because of the way we have our episodes dropping, you aren't going to hear Russell as the rootinest, tootinest, sick-shootinest cowboy in the West. Instead, we're going to watch from 1956, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Russell, back to you. So Saddle Up, we'll be, that, we'll be doing that one next week, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, Byron, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. We had we had a blast with you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a good time. And thank you, all the Lords, Ladies, and Nights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We want to invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions you make will make the show better. 
and we always appreciate you. So as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? If you're going to steal from Terry Benedict, you better goddamn know. This sort of thing used to be civilized. You'd hit a guy, he'd whack you done. But with Benedict, at the end of this, he'd better not know you involved, not know your names, or think you're dead because he'll kill you. And then he'll go to work on you.